This is Caroline. This is Paul. This is Kat with Chef Online. And this is Mike. Welcome to the Westworld Podcast. Tonight, we're talking about the season finale of season three, episode eight. It was called Crisis Theory. Episode eight was written by Denise Tay. I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name right. I hope I am. And Jonathan Nolan. And it was directed by Jennifer Getzinger in her second episode this season. Hey, guys. How are you doing? We're good. No Rona up in here. So we're still we're yeah. still two thumbs up. No Rona. How are you guys who are not in Houston? Well, I thought I had the Rona, but I've just been podcasting too much. <laughs> you're gonna want you're gonna want to um, use a dehumidifier in your room, <laughs> or maybe a, maybe a humidifier. I don't know what your scene is. That's very Garth from Wayne's World. Moisture. Uh, I, I thought I had uh, mononucleosis, but it turned out he uh, was just really tired. <laughs> I thought you were gonna say you're like Garth. You're gonna say if you're gonna spew spew into this. That's my favorite Garth sick line. That's really funny. <laughs> I mean, we're still here in New York, uh, wrestling with reopening like everyone else's, where where a lot of places are. So we'll see. But I'm I'm still bunkered down. Oh yeah, in Texas we have the ability to go places, but I am not lining up to go places. They told us to use common sense. My sense said, "Stay the fuck home." <laughs> yeah, and I listen much. to my sense when he talks to me. Although I did get a stay uh, home. Yeah. Thanks. I got yeah, a, I heard you. I heard a you survey sense. from Alamo Draft House today. You did what they want. They wanted to know what they needed to do to open back up to make people feel safe to come back. So they wanted to know, like, well, if our servers had masks and gloves, would that help? Or if we served all of our drinks in, in cans that you opened, would that help you feel better? If we had a bathroom attendant to make sure everybody did their shit right in the bathroom, oh, would God. that make you feel better? I don't want someone checking on my shit in the bathroom. That's extreme. <laughs> they were being thorough. I appreciated the effort. Yeah, I, that's cool. I mean, look at you. I didn't know you were even being a consultant for the Alamo Draft House. Well, you know. Safety first. We go there like three times a year, so we're major patrons. Yeah, that really makes sense. They call you. <laughs> right. I'm on the advisory board for Dunkin' Donuts, so it's pretty much the same thing. Yeah, they're like, <laughs> should, they're like, should we make more, Mike? Yes or no? <laughs> right. Should, I, we, should we make the donuts? Yes. I, I bring my own comment box with me, and I give it to them. Oh, my gosh. And I say, I'll be back tomorrow with some more suggestions, guys. Oh Keep it up. Oh, my God. That's awesome. You're doing great. Oh, my gosh. All right, Mike, let's get into some questions here. Yeah, so, I mean, this is the end. Well, this is not the end, as it turns out, but this is the end of season three. So I had mixed feelings about this episode. Overall, I think I liked it. I don't know how I liked how they ended up ending the season. So let's start there. The whole season, really the whole series has been about this idea of free will. Is it real? Is it not? Do we have free will? Do we not have free will? And tonight, Dolores kind of definitively says, yeah, we have free will. Humans have free will, but it's really fucking hard. And when you see all of like the death and destruction and, and the fires and the world blowing up, do we really, I mean, Paul and I had this conversation a couple weeks ago on this podcast. Is it worth it? Would we rather live in a Rehoboam-led world that's orderly and, and works? Or do we want chaos and annihilation? It's like Dolores has like the long view on this whole thing, right? Where she's like, well, in a generation or two, 
everything everything will be okay and people will have free will and they might not have all these modern conveniences but you know they'll they'll at least know where they stand my comments uh in the, in the podcast a couple of weeks ago were thinking about well, what if i was living through that with my family would i want to go through that transition knowing that yeah in a couple generations everything is going right. to be okay the answer is no i would not want to burn down the world and have my family go through that just for the sake of something maybe being better in the future yeah and i think ultimately that's where Delor- Maeve and Caleb, you know, it's questionable how how free how much free choice Caleb actually did, or if he was just like, if I have to choose between Sarak and Dolores, fuck, I'm going to go with Dolores. I would too. But they all kind of seem to take that long view. But I, I think I'm with you. I don't know if I want to be a guinea pig for that. Let let the next generation uh, go. What do you think, Caroline? I think I'm disappointed in Paul as a fellow Texan. I feel that if the Alamo has taught us nothing, it's that you be brave in order to ultimately have freedom. And it is not worth living under the dictatorship of Santa Ana. Okay? It's not. It's a different name, but it's just a different dictator. And uh, yeah, no, you, you got to fight for freedom, man. I don't know what your deal is over there. <laughs> but 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 they didn't have their families there, though, did they? They, they were just a soldier uh, sure fight. Did. So presumably they were... No, stuck. no, there they were, were some kids they... around. There were wives and shit. Yeah, no, there were there were those things too. So no, for but sure. But they sent there them was... out. I mean, they weren't in the in the fortress during the battle. I hear well, you that's know. what I was going to say. Were they? Because that's different. Sacrificing your life so that your family may live somewhere else. That's... no. I, I, I would do that. But in this Westworld world, you're pretty much putting your whole family up on the block. It's not like the head of the family can go off into deal with annihilation and leave the family safe at home. That's a different story. I think nine out of 10 people in the world are going to wind up dead following this fallout. <laughs> so so maybe little Bobby makes it through, but everyone else in this fucking family is going to be dead or fried, you know, so. Peter, Greg. Cindy Marshall. Cindy, right. <laughs> I was I was wondering where Bobby came from. What do you think? What do you think, Kat? Do you want to do you want to live Alamo style or do you want to uh, no, say fight? Fuck it, kick you it. don't you say fight Alamo style or well, it's, a li- it, it's a lifestyle for sure. You're yes. a fellow Texan. Don't disappoint Caroline. Come through here. Come through hard. I don't know, because I think uh, Dolores, it was very honed in this season. Free will. And she made this choice for everybody. Like I keep thinking about, but what if people like having the structure and maybe not having to make choices because it's just easier to kind of have a structured life? So especially in this ep- in the finale where it doesn't seem like the world that she left people with free will seems all that great. And so she assumed that people want this because she didn't have it or, you know, the whole Westworld thing. I was mixed about this whole thing and and choice and if there was really choices and it was a really free will with all these characters and it was a little bit confusing in this finale. I don't I don't know how I feel about it. Maybe by the end of this episode, I after we talk, but it, it's it's very I don't know I don't know how I feel about it. <laughs> well, I think it's interesting though because we don't really think about it, but Dolores really had an evolution. When you think about where she was at the end of season two, where she was you know rah rah team robots, you know team hosts and fuck all the humans. That's not how she is at the end of this. When when she's, uh, you know, as I lay there dying, that conversation with Maeve is, you know, maybe humans aren't the, you know, waste of space that I've always assumed they are. And they instilled the idea of beauty in us originally. Maybe they can do it again. And that's a big change for Dolores. She wasn't, I want to save humanity. She was always, I want to burn it all down so that my people, my species could live. And that's like a 180 from where she is at the end of the episode. But I'm, I'm going to jump down our questions that we have here and, and kind of go to the end credit scene with uh, Shaloris, 
because she's really picked up the mantle of fuck humanity, kill all you motherfuckers, and so that the robots and the hosts can live. That's like a real switch. Is Charlotte more like Dolores than Dolores was by the end of the season and the end of this episode? She does seem to resemble second season Dolores in terms of being super hardcore anti-human. I could see that, but it seems like something else too. Like there's a special special hatred that she seems to have now. Because a second ago, she was willing to ride off into the sunset with husband and child. And then when they got blown up, she was like, well, fuck that. I'm going to hate everybody. That was the hollow conversation, right, she has with Dolores, where she says, it took me a while to see. It took them blowing up in front of me and crawling out charred. And I think it's notable that she didn't fix the one arm part. And, you know, that she left her arm charred is almost like a like a reminder of her sacrifice and her journey. And she says to her, she says, you know, you were right. You got you to gotta kill your weakness. I, I think it was very much like a hardened heart kind of decision she was making there. I mean, that's a lot of printing beds that we see in that very final shot. There, She's making a lot of hosts down in Delos, Dubai. Yeah, they were all moving the little arms around. I think that the main thing that I felt about Haloris's journey was that it really felt like it paralleled Williams in terms of coming in with decent intentions, going through a bunch of stuff, like trying at first, feeling rejected, having a hard time, not really being able to find himself. She went through all those same things. And then the big tragedy of being burned. He has a fake arm. She's got this burned arm. Like I see a lot of like parallel action. And I feel like the showrunners are all about showing like bookending things or showing just parallel tracks for, th- for people. And so that's kind of my big takeaway from them. And Kat and I, what we talked about with like nature and nurture, that the fact that they had two different experiences going on at the same time and they came out acting differently. Yeah, it's that Frankenstein connection that they talk about in the yeah. post uh, credit behind the scenes bit. Yeah, yeah. And that like Einstein did like all of his experiments with twins. And that makes sense to me. We have twins. So that makes sense to me. Um, the idea of... You know, if you treat one differently than the other, you know, how, how do things work out? And we have tons and tons and tons of friends with twins. So there's a lot of conversation about, like, how could these two kids be so different when they grew up in the same house? That's That was my parallel, was William, really, for her. Dolores got a lot of flack, especially this episode, but even a little bit last week, too, but a lot this week, about using her clones as sacrificial lambs. It really is like a knock against her. Like, that made her an evil person. I don't think I was really bothered by that, though. You know, it's kind of how we grow animals for meat. They were created for a specific purpose, and they served that purpose. It wasn't like she grabbed, kidnapped people off of the street and sent them to their doom. I mean, I guess I could see why Charlotte was bothered. Matatushi wasn't really bothered. The Scottish guy, Tommy, you know, Martell, he wasn't bothered by it. He understood his role. Kat, does that bother you that she kind of made these guys and then really sent them off to their death to further along her plan? No, it didn't bother me because it seemed very Dolores. Like she says in that one in the episode, she was she trusted herself to get the job done and the mission. These were just little parts of her that she needed to trust and, and get it. I kind of like the Charloris going against Dolores because she brought them into this world to kind of do what she wanted. And then it ends up, you know, she was going to go against her one bad kid, I guess, you know, (laughs) out of the five that she made. I don't feel bad or I don't think the fact that she brought these into the world, I don't think it's bad. I think it's just what it is. And that's what she needed to do. It sort of resembles other science fiction that uses cloning as one of their plot devices and kind of the callous treatment that the clones receive in those either with books, movies, whatever. They're usually viewed as very throwaway things, even though they are 
fully living and breathing and they're just kind of waiting to supply body parts or whatever for the for the person that cloned them or to you know have their brain sucked out so that so that they can have their brain overwritten or whatever so it, it kind of resembled that sort of treatment like you said very purpose driven and not a lot of you know anxiety over their their sentience or anything like that there was an episode of Star Trek Enterprise the Scott Bakula led one his chief engineer gets critically injured and so they end up cloning basically a version of this of the officer and in the course of the episode he goes from fetus through childhood through puberty through like adulthood until he's of an age where they can harvest the the thing for which he was grown but at the end of it now it's like well now I gotta kind of kill you to take this thing out of you there's the whole ethical dilemma of I'm a living breathing person I have all these memories of this person whatever your purpose for doing it you made me and now I here I am but at the same time, I watched the episode all the time, and I think to myself, no, you were grown for a purpose. I, I'm sorry that, you know, you you have a very nice smile and you're very personable, but you were grown like Dolly the sheep. You had a purpose to serve, and you have served it. So now go to the abattoir, as uh, Maeve would say. Dolores is dead. Let, let's talk about that, because Jonathan Nolan says definitively in an interview I read today, this version of Dolores is dead. It's sort of a Doctor Who sort of thing, right? The same uh, character carries on in a different body and changed somewhat a little bit. It's not. I know it's not the exact same thing as Doctor Who because they don't exist at the same time. I think that when they address the whole thing that every single one is a copy of Dolores, every single host forever and ever, amen, then I think that anytime we see a host, it's okay to have that sort of Doctor Who feel of like, yeah, this is all still from the origination of Dolores. So she always lives on. I love that line. I think there was a couple things that really tore Maeve down in this episode that eventually turned her to the side. Dolores, again, not choosing to kill Maeve, defending her from the other SWAT guards and taking them out, but not not killing Maeve if she had the chance. You know, she says, you're all copies of me. Like like a real exasperated mother would say to a child who's had enough. You know, I've given you your, your free reign to go and grow, but I'm tired of you sassing me. You are alive because I allow you to be alive. You are all copies of me. It's interesting because you don't really think about Dolores to that, but she's really like this creation figure. Like she's almost kind of like a Jesus figure, which I think with Jonathan Nolan is not too far of a stretch that he may even think of in those kinds of terms. Arnold and Ford are gods. Does that heighten everything about her and that she kind of dies for them at the end, like a Jesus figure? Does that heighten like her elevation or am I just thinking too much about a show that airs on HBO? Now I'm not too biblical. So, you know, don't uh, throw me under the bus here, but is it, Jesus-y or more Moses-y that she essentially is trying to lead people to the promised land, but she dies before they actually get there. Well, that's definitely Moses. I was thinking more of how she dies at the end with Rehoboam, kind of for our sin. And she willingly goes to her death so that her people may have the chance to be free which is the whole idea of the new covenant made in the New Testament. Definitely martyr territory. <laughs> oh, for sure. For sure. The idea of sacrificing a very Texan-like of her, very, <laughs> I'll sacrifice myself so that my people may go on and find freedom. Sirach would be Santa Anna in that. There were very specific, Evan Rachel Wood in the inter- post-interview was like, this version of Dolores is dead. If she was just completely dead, Dolores then everything that you said, yeah, I could get on board with. Mm-hmm. But the fact that people don't stay dead, or at least some people don't, the fact that she died, you know, by the like the memories and stuff, I'm like, well, did she though? You know, and so I can't think about that yet until I watch season four, because 
I don't want to get all into it like like this and then be like, oh, she's back. That, that's how I'm feeling. It's very Lucy with the football, right? With Charlie Brown. The show has pulled the football away from us as we go to kick it so many times. I don't really feel anything when any of these guys die, even with this true death. And I totally believe this version of Dolores is dead. But Caroline, do you think, do you really believe for a second we're not going to see Evan Rachel Wood in some form of Dolores's body? next season? I think we do see her. I'm not sure how exactly, but I don't think that they're giving her up out of the franchise. So does that minimize when you see these emotional deaths? And I think this was a really emotional death. You know, I felt it. I, in the moment, I was right there. I was like, oh, this sucks. But at the same time, I don't know, does it lose something? Does it feel like it's minimized when there's always another host body around or another version of them? I think they, that with a show like this, they could have been a little bit smarter in terms of when they let the information out that the renewal had happened. It was only a matter of like 10 days or something. They should have just kept tight-lipped until we all saw the finale and had a moment. And then they could have said, oh, we were renewed. And everyone would be like, oh my God, what does it mean? Like we would have had a completely different reaction. And it just wasn't that long. I, I just think they should have kept that information quiet. I did try to look at the closing moments through, I guess, two kinds of two kinds of eyes, right? One eye being the, well, I know that they have a lot more story to tell and they're going to be able to tell it. Or the other eye says, they didn't know that they had the renewal when they made this, or at least publicly didn't know. So could this have been a serviceable ending to the whole thing? The answer is mostly, <laughs> you know. Except mostly. for Bernard, I think I agree with thing. What would they have had to change if they didn't get renewed? And would they have changed anything? I think it was the Bernard stuff stood out as really unresolved. But did anything poke out for you when you looked at it from that critical eye? What seemed like a weak series finale ending for you? All the Bernard stuff. I know that if they didn't have that, then the pacing of the entire thing would have been like breakneck you know, from beginning to end. But the Bernard stuff was so opposite <laughs> to, to that, not considering the scene at the beginning where Stubbs gets shot. That's that's an interesting scene that we should probably all discuss. But all the rest of it was, was it kind of gave me some like pacing issues, I guess, with this, with this episode. But the resolution part of it, you know, with, with Caleb and Maeve heading off and maybe seeing the end of the world together and if they would have ended there, I, I think I could have made in my, made up in my head how it would have proceeded. I would have been hoping for something more, but it could have ended there. And uh, Yeah, I kind of like the idea of the whole world burning down and being destroyed. That seemed almost like a very fitting Westworldy kind of end. In my notes, I called it a, a Fight Club ending. <laughs> yeah, I mean, not, not to be crude, but the Bernard stuff really left me with like some like real blue balls. <laughs> I don't understand what the fuck the point of his journey was this season. Just to go to the sublime and that we don't get to see in the last five minutes. Come on. You've had him in here for an entire season just to get us to season four for him. That's bullshit. Those post credit scenes are doozies. Like Caroline and I were discussing the second season post credit scene with William waking up somewhere and Emily there. I don't really have a good explanation in my head of what that even was and when that is supposed to take place. Do you do you have that scene locked in the chronology, Mike? I think it takes place in the future. I think it is a clone uh, or a host version of William, which because of tonight's scene seems like it, it makes sense. Yeah. But I think he is going on a journey kind of like how Dolores did where there will be multiple versions of William that evolve over time. I think we saw one version 1.0 kill human 
William tonight, but then he is now destined to kind of go on a journey of evolution that we saw in that season two ending. It makes me wonder if if it's possible that he's so perfect a copy of William that he will be haunted by Dolores, kind of like Head Six in, in Balt, uh, Battlestar Galactica. Because you asked if, if Evan Rachel Wood would come back, and I'm thinking, yeah, she's going to show up, I think, and she's going to be just fucking with him in in his head. I have zero imagination, and I think it came up with like 19 different ways that uh, <laughs> she she could come back next season. So, Caroline, what was your take on Bernard? There was no really big reveal for him. We got to see some cool God Mode stuff that Paul alluded to. You know, we got to see Bernard God Mode, which I haven't seen since the beginning of the season. But other than that, were you satisfied with how his story wrapped up this year? Not unlike William, he had his own personal journey to go on in this one. And even though he wasn't a big player, he had to go do this entire scene with Lauren's wife. And he had to be able to be set free from the guilt and the regrets that he had with, about Charlie. It's, again, similar to what William went through in terms of facing his past and sort of sorting everything out and coming to some sort of calm at the end of the whole thing. Now, yes, William died. And that is, you know, sort of like one of those things like, well, then what was the point? It was always the journey. Wasn't that always the point? It was never the ending. So, you know, we watched him go through this entire process of being a kid all the way through of being an old man and dealing with all of his problems. And Bernard, the, the one big thing that haunted him, and we saw him resolve that. So going into season four, my thinking is that he is a truly free blank slate guy who can do whatever he wants to do and is not going to be held back by all the past stuff we know about Bernard. I totally forgot about that scene, which is shame on me because that was a great scene. Uh, Kat, did, what, what was your takeaway of the Bernard scene with, with Lauren, Arnold's wife, who's now, you know, age 70? Did that hit you right in the feels? Well, I love Gina Torres, so just seeing her is always good. <laughs> but forgot a little bit and then you know when she's talking it makes sense but her talking about memories if you don't have memories then you're nothing was just kind of speaking to the Dolores storyline of you know she was getting her memory erased and then she ultimately is the version of Dolores dies because there's nothing left on the one hand okay I'm gonna go with this because obviously this is going into season four and the whole post-credits scene with Bernard and whatever he saw that was made him shut down. I'm going to bite and go to season four. I'm excited. But on the other hand, if it does feel a little disappointing and this feels very, they pulled a page from lost. They are giving us mystery boxes that I hope they have answers for because the Bernard arc very much seemed like that. Just keep going with us for this whole season. And it's not going to really do anything that, that Lauren scene I could have done without it still doesn't feel very significant to me unless we're what we're going to see in season four. And I did think the same way if they knew they were going to get renewed, you know, or not and what it meant, like they were just going balls to the wall in this, it felt like, and then hoping that they did get a season four is what is what it felt like in some ways. Everyone in the industry learned a lesson from Lost because Nolan and Lisa Joy said at the, from the very beginning that they had a five-year plan. They saw this as a five-chapter, five-season plan, and they've always said that. So if they are still sticking to that original you know, Bible that they put together at the very beginning, well, then, you know, we are looking at, you know, somewhere between 16 and 20 hours of, you know, great mind boggling things going on here. Kat, I was thinking about what we talked about so much in our podcast about what Bernard's and, and Stubbs role was for this season and how the whole buddy comedy kind of duo and how that they did provide the only amount of not super serious 
action-based, kind of heady information, they at least had the like, fuck you, Bernard, kind of moments that, (laughs) you know, we both enjoyed. I know we did. Yeah. And so I kind of feel like, like, we shouldn't forget that sometimes... Characters can be service the show in a subtle way and be important and and they need to come along for the ride because they're still in the story later and they have more to do. And so I guess I don't want to have the feeling that he was pointless, just that he was more of a of a background player more than we're all accustomed to because he was always, you know, a lead. That's a very good point. You know, Jeffrey Wright, I consider one of the three core leads on the show. And so maybe that's my issue is I feel he's my favorite character on the show. You didn't use him and he's awesome and you should always use him. It's like whatever it is that Ford had in mind for him at the beginning, I think this was when we kind of set all this in motion. I think he needed to go through this in order to be ready to do whatever that was, (laughs) you know, all this stuff that Dolores has been doing this season seems maybe, maybe wasn't actually part of Ford's plan. I think he has something in mind that Bernard was supposed to do, but he wasn't quite ready yet. And these things got him ready. Well, that's interesting because one of the previously on, it was a conversation he had had with Dolores about if I set you on your own journey, I wonder, would you be the villain or the hero in your story? Yeah, good call. Yeah, so interesting. And the show, you know, classically applies one thing and then takes it and puts it on someone else. You know, we did get to see Bernard go into murderous God mode at the top of the episode. And then we see him, you know, dip off to the sublime for some amount of time. Let's talk about that. Who wants to take guesses on how long... Bernard is down for the count in the sublime. I mean, it looks like years. I mean, and it looks like that time um, was enough for not, I mean, he wasn't just covered in like dust. He was covered in like Lisa Joyce said, like dirt, (laughs) which would suggest that the building around him had suffered structural problems. Right. Catastrophic like damage. (laughs) Yes. So, I mean, that could happen in the span of a week, but I don't think so. I, I don't think so. I, I got I very much got the impression that the scene with the man in black and Delos in Dubai is in a very different time frame than the Bernard scene waking up. Mm-hmm. There is a plant on the table when he goes into the sublime and it is completely gone, disintegrated as if it never existed when he wakes up. So to me, that indicates a large amount of time unless someone very politely came in didn't touch him, the sheets, the bed, clean the room at all, except for they removed the plant but left the vase there. It makes me a little worried about what Stubbs looks like in the in the bathtub. The idea of what you guys said at the top of the show, which was, I wouldn't want to live through this. I wouldn't want my family to have to go through this. So as much as it sounds like, why did he dip out? What a, like, a bullshit move. Well, he just did what, what we all said we wish we could do, which was skip ahead a couple of generations when things were going okay. And so I don't think it's going to be that long, but I do think that plausible that he maybe went, I don't know, maybe one generation in a way that he actually can come back, not a like a tragedy ridden figure, he gets to come out of this, you know, still kind of whole and kind of fresh for for all of this when everyone else has been basically massacred, I think. That's a really interesting point. Does next season need to pick up with Maeve and Caleb walking down the rest of that walkway and figuring out how they're going to rule the apocalypse? Or 
do we skip ahead to where shit's already gone down and we were living like Mad Max times and 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 then sorting it out that way? I think it'd be more interesting to, to pop ahead and, and where more things are sorted out because do we really want to sit around while they figure out what kind of government and like, no. like no, I don't want to see all this. So no, I would like to pop ahead. And I think, don't you guys think it's kind of clever that they would be able to do a time jump with just a scene of Bernard sitting on a bed covered with dirt, we all understand there's a time jump. We all get it. That's pretty smart visually, right? Very much in the style of the show to do it like that. And the show needs a time jump. You know, we didn't have a very big jump from season two to season three. It was only three months when we began season three. Three months is three months, but not a terrible amount of time given what had happened. Kat, what, what's your take? Do you think there has to be a big jump coming to season four and then maybe show us a little bit of what happened in between, but mostly jump forward? Or you want to see it pick up with Caleb and Maeve walking down the road going, oh, look at that ball building fall down. Oh, look at that rocket. <laughs> I actually, I, I am on team um, Mad Max. <laughs> I hope it opens with Bernard waking up, going outside, and we discover what's happened, how long it's been. I feel like it's decades. I want to say at least 50 years, hopefully. I don't know if I'm going to, that's one of my predictions, I guess. And then I want to have those flashbacks to the highlights, because I think also, I don't think Aaron Paul is going to be done. You know, like if they flash forward, depending on how long it's been, if it's been 20 years, like I wouldn't want them to use the same person and then put old makeup on him. I, I think they're going to have to utilize him in flashbacks in some way is what I'm guessing. But I want to do more of the Mad Max Bernard wakes up uh, timeline to see, because I feel like that's going to be more interesting. When I saw that post credit scene, like I had been feeling kind of eh, because for me, a little disappointed in some ways, the finale. But when I saw that scene, I was like, okay, I'm in, I'm going to keep going. This seems interesting. There's going to be a whole lot more that they can do in season four, that seems like it'll be exciting, hopefully. <laughs> Do you think Stubbs is dead or did Stubbs get up out of the tub and leave Bernard where he was because clearly he was going through a thing, you know, having passed out with the key encryption on his head? I've always wondered about hosts and gunfire because it's, it's like Maeve and Dolores can get shot several times before they even recognize the fact that they're, they're shot. It's like when they were hosts in the park, there was programming that said, if you get shot, you are killed, you know, <laughs> sort of like a video game, right? But in reality, they could actually keep running quite a quite a long time. Since he wasn't dead, I don't think he was going to die from that shot. So I I bet you he his his programming remember was to be Bernard's bodyguard, and so I think he sticks around, <laughs> like caretaking as much as he can. He can't seem to move him. Obviously, he didn't seem to move him, but to some extent, I bet he's still around. My big question mark about Bernard is their first scene of the episode. Can you explain anything that would make that Lawrence scene make any sense at all narratively? I mean, he just shows up with with these things, right? And he says, you're a copy of Dolores. And he doesn't even say if he is or he isn't. But like, what? My feeling was that this was all part of the... Dolores master plan going into effect that that you know we, we had joked a couple of weeks ago on our podcast about how you know she was playing like interdimensional 3D space chess when everyone else was playing checkers and I, I my feeling was that was all part of that the having the explosive gas on the truck you know he was part of the the ash and giggles being on demo and crowd control at the end, the big fireworks and explosions that we're hearing at the very end with Caleb and Maeve. I think that was all the Lawrence stuff. 
So I think it was setting up the scene of, Bernard, it, it's time for you to, to realize that this is what you've been waiting for. We've strung you along now for seven, seven episodes. Here is your suitcase. Here is your mission if you choose to accept it. It is time for you to get in the game. I think it was all part of her orchestration. I think she was able to set up 95% of everything that played out. And there was like a little 5% variance that was left to chance. Yeah, my, my big fat question, though, is like he shows up with other guys in cop suits. And when he hands over the case and the address. I thought that was a little weird that they didn't kill him. I figured they were going to kill the human. But was anyone else really underwhelmed by Lawrence being the final clone? I was super underwhelmed. <laughs> like I literally made a wah, wah, wah sound to myself watching that scene. It was sort of like, well, we've got to make another callback, I suppose. And uh, who else is on the list? Well, we haven't had Lawrence come back yet. Okay. He meant a lot to William. He did. Right. And he but he didn't up. interact with William. I know, though. but that wasn't... Right. William ran away. But he showed up on the scene where William was. And so, again, when you said the 5% variance, maybe William's still standing there, right? Like, he showed up at the right time to see William, right? They were all there at the same thing. He meant a lot to him. So maybe Dolores thought, if I send someone who it was important in William's story, and when I know that William and Bernard are going to have a meetup here, then maybe Lawrence is going to be important to this, whether it's just smoothing things over or whatever. I'm willing to give that in the 5% variance. I agree with Paul in the terms of like, were the other three riot people that were there, were they hosts or were they humans? And why did they go along with it? And why were they cool with what Lawrence was doing? And all that kind of stuff all seemed weird. But it did, when you just said that, it did help me click on, and I'm just like allowing this to be the truth, that like we sat there and said like, why did the police transport thing just come out of fucking nowhere? And just they and Ash was like, there's your ride. Go get it. Go get it. And I was like, where did that come from? I'm willing to go with the idea that Dolores preset up a bunch of different things. And if Lawrence was on the police squad, right, um, in the department, okay. then he could have sent that. So I mean, that was an important part. So, but I'm like just barely putting those pieces together. Still. No, I, I think a lot of that makes sense. And and I, you know, honestly, when I said he was close to William, so why show up for Bernard and Stubbs? I had totally forgotten the fact that William was had been there and had just run away literally right before they showed up. You got maybe right. That is part of the timing wise, part of the little bit of the window that she couldn't control. But all of it, the ash, the giggle, the right, she's buying the mob as she's walking through. I mean... She, she was taking the idea that money and a quick Wi-Fi connection, and you can do whatever you need to in this world. It, it was a it, it was a real cynical thing. The show hit on last week with Solomon says you know, that money money can alter any human relationship. Tonight we saw literally people changing sides mid battle. The sniper she buys the sniper for three times what Charlotte pays for it. The sniper takes out the two guys thump thump, and I love the scene. <laughs> Well, I feel like these are the people that she was buying off are more of the outliers. I feel like they did, they probably didn't care. But you're right. I think it is very cynical. But it did feel a little off. I, I think with all the AI stuff going on and then throwing the money and that very human element of greed uh, mid-battle, while I love it, it also felt... It's, it's felt a little bit misplaced some in some ways. It felt too long from like episode one or two, when we found out about the idea of, of being able to pay someone online for a crime. I know that they sprinkled that through. Obviously, that was an issue with Caleb, you know, with his army buddy and all that stuff. So I know they sprinkled it through, but it didn't, it didn't impact me enough 
to not just take it as what you're saying, Wi-Fi and a phone, and you could basically be like Venmoing money all over the place and fixing it. And it's like, well, but that was it. They did set up the structure for that, that you could get a thug to do anything you want at any at any point in time at, just for a price. I mean, I guess it was earned in that regard. But I agree with you guys that like, it felt silly to kind of be like, and now they're on our side. Oh, shit, they up the ante. Now they're on their side. Like, it did right. feel kind of like, oh, God, this is just weird. And part of the thing that we all talked about a lot was who's going to be Maeve's posse? Who's going to be Dolores's posse? And like, we were like trying to assemble teams like a la Avengers, right? And at the end of the day, the answer was whomever they pay. And it right. was like, well, th- oh. that's the cynicism, right? Oh. That's fucking cynical. <laughs> that's super cynical. Well, it makes me sad for all the time we tried to analyze it for who had motivation and who would be interested and who would benefit. And then it was like, oh, fuck. It's just whomever showed up. I mean, think about the idea that Ashing Giggle, who turned out to be a pretty good confidant of Caleb throughout the season, if Charlotte had been a little more clued in or Ciroc, the right price, and those two turn on him. That's the world that they're painting. If money is involved, there is no such thing as allegiance. It's just who can make the better, faster, larger direct deposit. I don't know. That's really cynical to me. So down here in our world, Paul works in oil. And one of the most interesting ads we saw most recently was, you know, we're all going through like oil wars right now, was a Saudi company saying, if you can't beat them, join them, come work for us. And guess what? People are fucking lining up because guess what? Whomever pays the highest price is going to get the workforce. And so I was like, oh, shit. I can't believe they put that, though, in the ad. Like, it was like, you know, we're, we're going to fuck you over. So either join our team now or <laughs> go work for the loser. Oh, my God. So I, I don't know. It, it is real life in that way. You asked our fathers and our uncles and our mothers uh, that are baseball fans, and you ask them about the their, the player that they identify most with when they were a kid for their hometown team. When free agency was introduced after one of the collective bargaining years was like the late 80s, early 90s, the idea of a player staying with your team for their entire career evaporated almost overnight. Now it's it's like the rarity that this player, the, your Derek Jeter, does their entire career with like the Yankees. That's an exception now, and that used to be the rule, but it it's the same idea. My allegiance to this team, I'm, I'm going to play with the Mets my entire career. Oh, you know, and then your nose is whiffed away by the large sum of money. It's very real world. doesn't mean it's not cynical. Let's talk about the, the scene where she, where Dolores sends Caleb off with his new army. She stays behind and we hear the, the clinking of the sword the start of Dolores going into fight mode. She takes out all the SWAT guards and then she falls to the to the ground shooting the guy as she goes. And then Maeve comes down there and joins her and they have, you know, Maeve Dolores brawl two for the second week in a row. We had a big brawl with them. This was my Friday favorite action sequence over the course of the season. It was well choreographed. I mean, the action was fun to watch. It was very John Wick with the uh, the way that she used the the firearms on the guys. She knew where to... She knew where to get them in their in their armor, so that so that they weren't uh, so they would be killed when when she shot them. The I guess I have to imagine that uh, Maeve's control over electronics must require some amount of concentration. It's not just like a, a trivial thing for her. She's either acting physically or she's doing that, but she's not doing both, and that's why she had to 
get her ass kicked <laughs> before she could she could use her mind powers to slow down Dolores. She just wanted to do it the old-fashioned way with the sword before that. You think it was Maeve that caused Hololores to tap into her and slow her down? I thought that was a power that Charlotte was independently exercising because the first time it happens when she sees the hologram and she kind of has her little spasm, Maeve isn't there. Ah, you're right. Because... Dolores was using, she had the, uh, she has the contact lenses in that allow her like the Google Glass, yeah, like their version of the Google Glass. That's how I think Charlotte is fucking with her. I didn't get the impression that Maeve was involved in that, but maybe she is. Maybe she is. That was a I mean, question clearly, mark for clearly me. Maeve, Maeve and, and Charlotte were definitely in cahoots uh, by this point. But I don't know. That's interesting. I loved this fight scene. Off show kind of thing, just in terms of having Evan Rachel Wood fight Tandy Newton, having it be directed by, you know, a woman and having these two leading ladies kick ass. You are so there for it. I felt like when they're the two male action heroes are doing it, I felt like, oh my God, we're having a moment right now. And so I, I, in that sense, I was having a real moment with Evan Rachel Wood as Dolores, just kicking butt, kicking all the SWAT, being John Wick, like, like uh, Paul mentioned, you know, these two characters are so connected they have such a history and respect in some way for each other. It was interesting. I think when Charlotte said, I own all of Delos, when Dolores gets uh, her new body, it was clearly said Delos. And so I feel like maybe there was something in that that made her tap into it. Like that model, since Charlotte knew this was her plan all along, that maybe she did something to that. That's how she was able to kind of tap into. Now that's a great point. Like the same kind of thinking that Mike applied to having Lawrence just show up out of nowhere with the magic beans for Bernard earlier in the episode. Similarly, we had Dolores had to be able to get a hold of her prototype body from like 30 years ago and have it in that casket and waiting for Caleb. Like, like the logical leap there is just sort of like, just go with it, bro. I think that's <laughs> I think that's what I'm supposed to do. But it didn't immediately make sense to me. How was that even there? Do you, do you have any uh, insight into that, guys? It was just clear in this episode and, and how we had talked in the, in the other episodes about Dolores just being mega on top. And I think just knowing how people re- would react to certain things, she ultimately knew that she was going to be this martyr or whatever, be in that system because she you know, the last command or whatever shuts down uh, Rehoboam. And so I feel like she just planned everything. Like she knew, given all her years of experience, how things were going to work out. And she planned it perfectly. Not perfectly because there was Charloris, but that was a variable (laughs) that she couldn't account for. Everything was so well planned where, you know, Lauren shows up and then the body's there. She even accounted for whether Caleb was going to even take her there or, you know, give up. I just want to say that she was just playing the mega chess. She figured it out. This episode really honed that in for me personally. Actually, I want to go to Caroline on this point because I think this was an important thing about the variable, about the little part that she couldn't exactly plan. After she fights with Maeve and she goes off, she falls to her knees and, you know, hollow Charlotte basically tells her, you know, checkmate bitch. She's frozen or she's weakened at that point. But after Charlotte disappears... I think that she could have gotten up and she could have continued fighting. I I felt like she made like a calculation to stop that based on how things had worked out now, it was time for her to go write her ending the way she said she talks about at the top of the episode. Why did she surrender, Caroline? Why do you think was she frozen? 
was she still incapacitated or, or did she go kind of willingly submit herself for her martyrdom moment? I think this is probably your best example of how she's like Jesus in terms of she had spent a long time this entire season trying to talk to other people, people who were and were not her disciples, if you will, and try to convince them of what they needed to be doing. And I think that after you have her still have to fight Maeve a second time, you know, now Halors is coming out and she's got all this stuff. I think you might get to the point where you say, you know what, I'm going to have to do something much bigger than this. I mean, ultimately, it was her sacrifice that made Maeve finally come around, as you could probably say, you know, with the story of Jesus. Many people said, if you're willing to do that ultimate sacrifice, you must really have a point here that I should listen to. So it it did take that. And we all know she could have gotten away, I feel. I mean, she showed how many different ways she could have gotten out of there. Same with Jesus, right? He never like ran away or anything like that, right? She had tried. I mean, she implored Maeve, how many times? And she talked to how many different people to try to be like, just listen to me. It was a chess move unto itself. It seems like giving up, but I think it's actually the big win because she got Maeve ultimately. Jesus at the Last Supper. The whole point of the Last Supper is Jesus knows it's coming. He knows they're coming for him because he knows that someone has betrayed him. He knows he, he knows that they're coming to take him away. And this is his last time with his homies. So he has to give them kind of like final instructions and have the meal and stuff. In this situation, Charlotte would be kind of like the Judas, right? The one who betrays her, who had been like a right hand woman and like kind of betrayed her. And then Maeve kind of being like Peter, who denied him three times, you know, like you're exactly right. She said, how many times did she confront Maeve and say, you've got to trust me. I'm not going to, I'm doing this for all of us. And Maeve being so naively singular fo- singularly focused, believing in Sarak. Jesus gives in. He doesn't fight when he comes and gets arrested and he's in the garden praying. He knows it's of the moves that are left, it's the move he has to make. And, and I feel very much like you, I agree. Dolores knows it has to end there at Rehoboam, at Sarak, at, at, at Insight. It's just how long, how many more moves before she got there. We've come to that part now. The rest will play out there. Um, You have Jesus. I have Obi-Wan Kenobi. Same kind of thing, though. The sacrifice is the same, and the effect is sort of the same. She, She needed to be hooked up to Rehoboam in order to deliver that bit of code that that made Caleb the god user for for Rehoboam. That had to happen. There there was no other way that that was going to work out. It was a backup plan, though. Because originally, if he had been able to get his USB drive in there, that would have done it. That was the point of the USB drive, was to upload uh, the plan. Dolores, because she's a fucking chess master, had herself as the failsafe to that. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah she's playing chess, man. She's playing She's playing like Wookiee chess. It's, uh, it's pretty <laughs> impressive. There's a lot of stuff going on once they all get into the same room and she gets hooked up. Let's start with her death sequence. The Bernard-Lauren stuff, it's been so long since the Arnold and Bernard dealing with that. And yes, it's a foundational thing for him, but I feel like we're so far from season one where he was really wrestling with that. That conversation struck me a lot more because of the idea of memory and how you're never really gone as long as someone carries you for it. And I put in my notes here that it was like very Coco-like. That's the whole point of Coco is as long as someone remembers you, you're never truly gone. You continue to exist even in like the world of the dead. I feel like that's what Lauren is trying to talk about with their son, that as long as I can hold on to a memory of him, I can take him with me into the light and keep him alive. And and memory is an essential function of what it is to be human, I think. It was particularly impactful for me, the Bernard-Lauren scene, because of how 
Dolores is finally put down here. So I want to ask you guys, what was your take on kind of seeing her be, be deleted literally bit by bit? And then also, were you surprised at what her final memories were? We had her kissing Teddy. We had her seeing Maeve and her daughter. That's a, kind of all wrapped into one. Caroline, what was your what was your emotional impact from the uh, Dolores goes down for the final count scene? Thinking about when they were making the adjustments on the hosts and when they felt like they got to the point of it being most like a human and maybe even better than that was when they began with the reveries and the fact that they could have memories and that it, they were able to continue to draw on their experiences and grow. So I think they planted the seed way back then that if you remove those memories, if you if you stop having those, your life essentially is over. They, they did a great job of setting that up, that reveries were so important to changing the evolution of the hosts. I mean, I knew what I was watching. You know, they did a really good job of, of making her feel like she was depleting right in front of us. And, and, and I could see where that would get to Maeve, you know, that that would just look, it wasn't blood, but for the, for her, you know, I mean, we were watching her wither away there. That final, like, you know, power surge scene of her like screaming. Oof. I thought that was very impactful. Well, I think I've said in other podcasts that the possibility of growing old and, and um, losing my memory is the scariest way to go. Any form of dementia, Alzheimer's, all that kind of stuff is the is the one thing that terrifies me above all other possible ways that you can go. Super interesting because because Lauren seems to have dementia. Right. Yeah. So that's that's really interesting that that plays into the memory. I think part of that scene was she's pleading to who she thinks is Arnold to take her into the light, same way she kept their son alive all those years. I, I took a, a part of that scene was was to not let me go so that I don't fade away. I don't know what I would be if I didn't have my memory. It, it is a very scary thing, the idea of not knowing. And, and I'm not talking about like addresses or phone numbers, core things, you know, looking at your child and not knowing who that is, looking at a loved one and not knowing who that is. That's terrifying. And it is who we are. So it's interesting when you think about it, Dolores, at the end there, what her final and therefore closest held memories were. She was really being sincere with Maeve all this time. Of all the experiences she had, Maeve was one of the final things that she held on to to the very end. Now, that's also maybe calculated because she needed Maeve to finally, for fuck's sake, come to her side to help Caleb out here at the end. But I think it was more sincere than that. I think she truly, truly felt like a, a kinship with Maeve that Maeve didn't believe until the very end. You know, if if not for going into her memory at the end there, I don't think Maeve switches sides. I think she blindly continues to follow Sorak's empty promises. How about you, Kat? What was your take on on the Dolores death scene and, and the, the function of memory as a measure of whether we're alive or not? I thought it was one of the best moments of the episode because you just think, you know, if you lose your memories, what are you? I think it was so fitting because We've seen Dolores die so many times and we know that if you kill the brain ball or smash it or whatever, that's it. And you would think that that's the way she would end or any of these hosts would end. But the fact that it wasn't that way and that it was by stripping all these memories and these experiences, that made it more impactful for me. And that's why I'm just a little worried that when they, kept, when they keep saying this version of Dolores is dead, that it's going to take away from such a good death scene 
you know, it's kind of like a Game of Thrones death. Like it was very fitting and it's so good. And yes, it will hurt not to see this character again, but it's the right thing. And so that's why I'm just hesitant on the the overall impact. Also, I noticed Maeve when Ciroc tell, you know, when when she when he brings back Dolores, like bring yourself back online. And Maeve cringes a little bit when he says that because it's that whole thing has always been so um, like a, a traumatic experience when, you know, people can control them. And I saw her cringe and eye roll a little bit when Ciroc was doing that. I think that's when she started feeling for Dolores and started understanding, oh, I think you, I should be on team host. <laughs> Maeve all season had been very sensitive to the idea of not being in control of the little world that she had come to expect she was in control of, you know, going back to like the beginning, the start of the second episode where he uses the button to stop her as she's about to attack him. Like none of that sat well with Maeve because having control over other hosts in the park and her, her EEM, you know, abilities all became very part of her identity and her, what she, what she perceived as having power. And Sorak had a very good way of needling her and reminding her that she had very little power. And she certainly was not on the same level as Dolores level power. There's a part earlier in the episode that I took note of where Sorak is finding out about Caleb. His goons are showing him the video from Sonora where Caleb is on, on film stealing the USB drive from Solomon. And Sorak turns to Maeve and says, you knew about him and you didn't say anything? And her response is, you've got Rehoboam, darling. You don't, you don't need me to do it. But I took that more as a, she was starting to hedge her bets a little bit. That would have been very useful information that if she was fully committed to bringing down Dolores and her enterprises. She would have been like, oh yeah, by the way, Dolores had this dude with her who may fuck everything up and definitely walked out of there alive. But she didn't share that information. So I thought that was an interesting sharing, an interesting start of her tide turning. Paul, what did you think of the of that death sequence? And were you struck by her final memories? Were you surprised that we saw Teddy? Were you surprised that we saw Maeve as we saw her final thoughts? Those were the things that she held most dear, that she felt like she was doing this all for in, in one way or another. So they all made sense and i mean i'm I'm sad to see her go as a character because she's i don't know there's something about a badass woman on tv that i that i kind of like and this, and she fits that category it was kind of visceral like with the um the, the wires that were hooked into the slits on her chest that looked oh yeah pretty rough yeah. um so yeah i mean it, it was uh it was a lot it reminded me of like you're like you're like an elderly grandma, you know, hooked up to machines in a hospital. It's almost hard to look at them. I found it hard to look at her when they would pull up close into her. And then the, the one tube really, like, like you said, running under her chest was like, oof, maybe cringe. Was the reveal that Sorak was a more or less just a mouthpiece for Rehoboam? I think, you know, having been on the podcast with me that no, I don't think so. I, I think that it was apparent to me that he just didn't didn't seem like he was actually in control. I am kind of, I don't want to say the word disappointed. That's too strong. But I expected there to actually be a twist with the brother. Oh, I think there is one. I think uh, there so is one. We're going that way? Okay, because mm-hmm, I, mm-hmm, I mm-hmm. felt it in my guts were like, this, <laughs> this feels more like the brother is also involved with this more. But I guess the way Sirak was like, well, you know, um, the machine told me that I should, you know, get rid of my brother. So I did. I wanted something else to come out right then. And I guess, again, had we not known that they were already given so many more seasons, I would feel differently, I guess, about this. I'm a little bit more just kind of mellow about this finale because I'm like, well, 
there's still more to the story. So I don't have to be like up in arms, but I definitely feel like there's some twist with the brother. They gave a lot of answers tonight and, and three of them were revealed kind of as twists moments. And I don't think any of them particularly were. You had been dead on from the middle of the season, at least that he had been kind of a mouthpiece avatar for Rehoboam. Check. He was. That Bernard was the one who had the key in his head all along. It was only one of two possible things why she kept him there, and it was the most plausible one. So not a big reveal. Check. The reveal that back in part five, Caleb didn't choose to rape the host girls. Did anyone think, based on the Caleb that we have met this season, that he would have gone along with that or not interceded? I, I was underwhelmed by that reveal, and, and they they teased it all episode as like something. Well, ooh, is Caleb going to step in here? Is Caleb going to partake in the flesh? Is he a new William? No, no. Paul, did that work as any kind of surprise for you? Was there any suspense there about what Caleb would or would not have done? Actually, I think Kat and I need to talk about this a little bit more. Kat, how do you feel about the idea that not raping a woman makes you the leader of the revolution? Do you think that's a little fucked up that that's like, that's just the bar? That's like, you know what, you guys? He's the guy who didn't rape us. Let's have him be the leader. If she's only using that one judgment, like that's a very low bar for Dolores. But also I think this finale with Caleb was very underwhelming, like his character, because I was on board, you know, season one, I knew he was going to be something. I knew there was a reason why she picked him. And I love that, you know, it wasn't random, but still like, I don't know. I'm just kind of eh with Caleb. And that whole reveal was also eh, like, like you're right. It's kind of disturbing almost, right? Like it's yeah. like, hold up a second. You, you could have picked anyone in the world and the very best situation you could come up with was he didn't rape me. Yeah. And also huh? he's like, he's killed all those other people. Like, I mean, right. you know, there's, there's redemption arcs and, you know, he killed people that whatever, but they're not convincing me or selling me on Caleb. I'm so happy you asked that because I, I had the same idea. Oh, he didn't rape someone is, is a great quality trait. And I agree. You should not rape people. That, that's very true. That is a good thing. But I don't know that I agree with you. I don't know that it, it, it serves Dude, as a leadership quality. Dude, that's just quality. fucking neutral. That doesn't make you a good guy. That just makes you neutral. <laughs> Straight out of the book of Mike. Oh, Jesus. But, but, but here's, the, here's where I'm going with this. If you're Dolores, though, and you're evaluating humans... Dolores in the park, that was a main experience Dolores had was mm -hmm. human males rape and murder. They particularly like to rape and murder me. So from her point of view, I mean, the, the look she has when she's like park five Dolores is I've never seen anything like this before. And, and there's a couple other things, too. She asked him earlier on uh, when she's putting herself together in the locker you know, she does the whole weird, like, motivations question. You know, if I didn't have this face, if I didn't have this skin, would you still have chosen to help me? And I think there's been a couple times over the course of the season where she has tested his choice-making ability. She, I think there is at least three times that she has either tested his motivations or, you know, what would you choose in this adventure? Would you choose A, uh, being a good guy, or B, being a bad guy? And so I think this was kind of like the final part of that, though it turned out to be the first part of it. It put her, him on her radar as a human male that if she needed to, she may be able to count on. Because again, what is her experience with men in Westworld? It's all bad. 
Okay, so but then Kat, again, let's like talk about this for just a second. This is all reduced to if I wasn't a beautiful woman, would you not have saved me that day? And I'm going to say when she says, did, if I don't have the skin, did she mean a white woman? Is that what we're referring to? I, th- I think she meant being a hottie batati. Okay, okay. But she said this skin. I'll go with you on when she says this face. And I'm talking to Kat. When she says this face... I feel like I agree with you that that means that she's beautiful. When she says this skin, I feel a little different about it. I do feel like there's a question mark about what if she was Maeve? Would you have done the same thing? What if she was from in Shogun world? Would you have treated her the same way? Or is it because I'm a white woman? Did you treat me differently, better maybe? And then just generally though, what a weird ass way to ultimately take this character and make his whole backstory that it was all just like, look, you guys, he helped, he helped them. He would have done it even if she was fat or ugly or something. And and he didn't rape her. So, I mean, this guy's amazing. I, I just feel <laughs> like it's like, Bleh. yeah, yeah, I, I feel the same way because even the questions that you brought up, Mike, like she was asking him about choice. In the end, it seems like he still didn't have a choice and he was kind of going with it because what's the alternative? You know, he didn't have much of a life before and that could be, you know, reduced to the Rehoboam dictating his life. You're not giving me anything ultimately. Caleb doesn't do much. He kind of just is following Dolores and I wanted to see more of him and his qualities and the things that they showed us did not convince me. And then everything that Caroline said, I agree with like, oh yeah, this is why we chose him. I thought there was going to be a bigger purpose, like, or a bigger, uh, like aha moment of this is why Dolores, like one of the crazy smartest person doing this mega chess game would choose somebody. It seems like very off. It was just really shallow reasons yes. to me at the end of yeah. the day that I'm like, I just feel like there. this is again. And, and you can say that. So I decided you, I decided to take you along for this, for this adventure, but no, it's, So you're the leader of the revolution. Like, it's so much bigger than just, I thought you'd be helpful during these last weeks. (laughs) You know, it's like, no. This goes to my point that I made earlier, though. I think initially he was just there for that purpose. I think she course corrected during the course of the season. We just didn't realize it. Her plan changed in the middle of the season. The plan that she started at the beginning of the season where she kills the German guy and she steals his money and she takes out Liam and takes his money, all of that changed at some point during the season. And maybe because she saw a human who made good choices beyond not raping people, but he did save her he did make a couple choices where it could have been easy to cut and run he you know she knew his story she knew uh that uh he didn't do like personals on the rico thing i i think because of caleb she changed her plan to a save humanity versus a strictly save the host plan i agree with you that the 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 john connor terminator-esque leadership uh you know to save humanity that resume is light but I think he had a profound effect on her. And I, and I think in the end, that was his value as a, as a character, was what he did to Dolores. I think he was responsible for the safe humanity versus kill all the humans so that hosts can rise up and live. But that being said, I agree with Kat. I, I was kind of underwhelmed about the idea of choice. In the end, he didn't really choose. He was a disciple of Dolores and really just did what she told him to because the alternative was Sorak and the controlled choices, you know, and even if it was going to be, you know, chaos and, and death, he wanted that versus feeling like someone was choosing for him. 
He was ride or die in a very literal sense. Either he rode with her or someone was going to kill him. <laughs> right. I mean, there, there's a version of the story where he's John Connor and he meets up with the T-800 you know, and they together take on the world's problems, the, the Terminator references. Uh, I, guess he's, yeah, I guess he would be John in T-2, you know, where he makes a bond with the machine. My, my thought was that he was going to be some kind of advanced host where he was really equally parts human and machine so as to be like bridging the gap between the two i thought that's where they were going to go with it where yeah. where he was a he was a species bridger you know like a hybrid who you know the one the one to unite them all kind of thing because it really was kind of a ho-hum finish we don't have enough to go on yet which is a funny thing to do with the season where you're introducing the guy that you that you say is going to lead the way into the future we we know <laughs> We're kind of where he is, actually. He doesn't even know what memories of his own to trust at this point. All we know is what we've seen him do. Everything else could be a jumble in his mind, right? I think we're stuck with that, actually. We're not going to find out more about what made him a great guy. We're just going to have to see that he does potentially turn into a great guy at some point. There's no point in this where he displays any kind of leadership qualities or desire to lead or anything like that. So if we get this time jump that we're predicting, he'll have gone through that stuff and become the the the, the Nick Stahl John Connor. <laughs> that. I, I mean, in addition to not even, like you said, like not even really wanting to be a leader and all that kind of stuff, how much do you guys think he was even comprehending of what was going on? His what the fuck face was on like 85% of the yes. entire season, especially in this whole ending. If you guys just, if you just zeroed in on him, his face was like, <laughs> just like, ah, like the whole time. I'm sorry, the man has no leadership qualities and he doesn't even really get what's going on. Yeah. <laughs> so what the hell? The what the fuck face is Aaron Paul's bread yeah. and butter look, though. I mean, I know that he's doing a lot. He's doing her Herculean work with that what the fuck face. And, and I'm good with that. Well, they were saying that they chose him for the big eye expression and all that stuff. And I, I completely get it. It's just that. So then from the word go, he was mapped out to be a what the fuck responder to whatever Dolores was anticking about that day. But that doesn't a leader make. I don't quite get it. I, I understand that it's just like, okay, we're just going to have to take it because of all the people out there, this was the best raw material we had to work with. And so that's what we're going to go with. And I guess that's fine because we did see when people got that information on their phones, they did go fucking bananas, you know, and so all those people are probably not good picks. <laughs> you know, there were very few people who acted like normal people, you know, after that moment. You know, I guess he was just the best of not so good choices. The classic narrative of the hero, though, and the hero's journey in the monomyth is that one, the hero doesn't know what the fuck is happening at the beginning and, and typically refuses to call. That's always how the hero's journey starts. They're not seeking the leadership. It is thrust upon them and they, they typically turn it down and then give into it and then they begin their journey. If you're looking at the circle of the monomyth, He's ending season three here at the very, very start of it. He's got a long road if he is going to have that kind of classic story. Let's actually talk about season four, because I think this episode left a lot of question marks. Let's go back to Sonora, Mexico for a second, because the episode starts with the little screen saying that uh, Solomon was offline. The reserve power is active. That means all of the collected outliers that are in frozen stasis 
are probably still alive because the power is still running at that place, which would also include Sorak's brother, Jean-Mi. So do, can we count on seeing an outlier rebellion next season? Maybe seeing Jean-Mi and Sorak is also still alive. Are we, are we in for a uh, Angeron brother beatdown? I hadn't even thought of that because um, I was thinking that the brother would s- still somehow be kind of a ghost in the machine type type thing, even though they killed the machine. So I guess that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> no, but his but his corporeal form though still exists. He's he could be a ghost in his own human machine, you know, which yeah. is you know, maybe even scarier for a Sorak like figure, or you know, as the face of the outlier, even maybe more so than Caleb is the man who 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 is like the original. He's like the OG outlier. What do you think, Kat? You think we may see outliers and and uh, Jean Me come back next year out of the deserts of Sonora, Mexico? I mean, I hope so because that seems like a very interesting storyline. Throw in at the same time Char Loris's mega robot army, which I definitely want to see <laughs> um, in the in season four. It's going to feel like a very different show in some ways, or it might feel with all the with all the new hosts. Maybe I'll kind of throw it back to Westworld, but in this real world. It sucks, though, because I, I, have, I have a little bit of feelings on that because I don't like where season three ended. If, it ha- if there was no more seasons, it was very lackluster. I actually want to see what they teased me more than what actually happened. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. In that sense, I'm kind of disappointed because I'm like, I have to wait another season and hope that it's not eight episodes of what the fuck face, you know? <laughs> If they if they go along the lines of Solomon and Sirak showdown, I think they should and mixed in with the Delos iRobot army. Well, how about you, Caroline? What what now having seen season three and being with the show since the beginning, what are you looking for, hoping for in season four to 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 take you and grab you and, and keep you locked in? If we are gonna remove Dolores from the mix in the form of like actually being like a fighting leader, I feel shortchanged by, again, just like a human guy who just fell into the whole situation. So I think I'm seeking who is the next actual good leader, whether it comes from Maeve or whether, you know, whether Hale pops up. I don't, I don't exactly know, but I'm not comfortable with how they're leaving us with whatever the revolution is supposed to be. I like your outlier idea. I think that that gives you the repopulation of the planet. Like you could eliminate everybody with all that dust and still have the outliers and all those hosts being made as the next population. It, it stands to be like a fresh slate. You know, everybody comes to to the table like, okay, what the fuck do we do now? I think that's all interesting. My big thing at that at the post credit scene, William coming out as a as a host. First of all, you guys, I'm just gonna let you in on a little secret. That was sexy AF when they played that music, and he comes out all dressed in black, and he comes marching towards him. I was like, like I rewound it and rewound it and rewound it. I'm a little bit of a mess. It's the Rona time. <laughs> I was like, yes, and then it made me think, how long's this guy existed? Because the concept of whether William was a host or a human in various scenes in the last two seasons has been always a question mark on everyone's mind. Is this one in front of us a host or a human? And now that we know that there is a host, there is no reason that he was just born today. It could be that he actually was hanging around and there were times when there was host guy. So I think that that was really something that caught my eye far more than the revolution storyline 
I want to know what else is going on with, with this William character now. It's really interesting that he was dressed as his park self, which to what Kat mentioned a little while ago, I, I think season four definitely goes back to the park. I think we are full tilt back to Westworld, back to where it began. Even if it's not Westworld, we're going to be back in the park somewhere. We know all six parks now, or at least have an idea of five of the, of the six and uh, the fourth one is the medieval one. So I, I, I am convinced we're going back to the park. And I think him being dressed as that version of William, it was a big indicator to me anyway. How about you, Paul? What do you want to see in season four? What did you feel was unanswered here? Uh, what do you need to keep going on the show to keep to keep juiced up? I want to see the the point <laughs> of all this. I want to see the resolution to what Ford put in motion originally. I don't think this is it yet. So I want to see what Bernard's big fat purpose is. That seems like the six-season arc that will drive the the whole story. Whereas Dolores was, you know, she's going to come, she's going to go, whatever. But it's it's Bernard's journey that that will get filled out and, and inform us about what what was this even about? But it'll take us all that time to get there, unfortunately. Kind of like episode nine, Rise of Skywalker, season four, Rise of Bernard. Rise of Bernard. His becoming. Yeah. I agree with you. I think Bernard is going to play heavily. I think Bernard has to play heavily. There are a lot of Bernard stands out there. I'm not the only one. After really keeping him on the simmer setting all season, I think I think he needs to play a heavy role. And that end credit scene definitely seemed to dish up that he's going to have something to say. One thing I just want to add to the season four predictions or things answered before we, we end here is there was a lot of the maze this season. As much maze as we have seen, since the beginning of the show and it ended up going unexplained the, the the maze is out there it's in graffiti it's 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 all over the place it was on insights website yesterday uh, or sunday after after the episode aired uh, sunday night but we didn't get a part of that how is the maze out in the world to me again that signifies we're headed back to the west world the maze and and the park are very linked to me all season, I have been predicting that we were actually just in a larger version of a park, that this whole season was just taking place in like a, a real future world park, bigger and more complex than we had seen before of the any of the parks. And that seems like that is actually not true, as it turns out. But that maze still means something. It's not a coincidence. I don't think they put it in there just as an Easter egg. I think the maze and Bernard and Ford are all going to come back into play in season four. Guys, another season, another season done of Westworld. Kat, thank you so much for joining us tonight and throughout the season. I think this was your fourth episode with us this season. Thanks so much for for popping in and talking to us. Yes, I'll be back in two years when uh, Westworld <laughs> Four <laughs> hits, or maybe three, because you got to factor in uh, Rona. So <laughs> freaking Rona. Where can people find you and Shuffle online uh, on the internet and social media? Where where can they come interact with you and tell you what they think about Westworld? You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Things Cat Loves, and you can follow Shuffle. On online on twitter and instagram at shuffle online and you can read all our articles and good things at shuffleonline.net this is caroline this is paul this is cat with shuffle online and this is mike thanks for listening to the westworld podcast thank you for listening this has been an original pod clubhouse production pod clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you. Pod Clubhouse.